In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Today's Money Tales guest is Randy Horn a self-described grinding entrepreneur. Randy created a board game company out of business school that generated millions of dollars of revenue. Unfortunately, he lost that business after a multi-year trademark infringement lawsuit. Randy invested his heart and soul into this business and suffered a great personal and financial loss as a result. While he felt the bottom of the abyss, Randy picked himself up and saw that his entrepreneurial flame was not extinguished. Hi, this is Sandy. Today, Randy is the founder of the Whole Bean LLC, which manufactures and distributes a new brand of chickpea-based snack products called Finally. Their first product is a line of chickpea butters. Randy and his wife, Tracy, started this mission-based business with a commitment to bring a nut-free nutritious substitute to the highly contagious peanut butter segment. Randy also founded Zabmondo Entertainment in 1997, a highly successful board and card games company. Zabmondo's history includes net profit margins unheard of in the toy and game industry. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, onto our conversation with Randy Horn. Randy Horn, welcome to Money Tales. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us today and Would you start us off by giving us a brief overview of who you are and your life, importantly focusing on maybe two or three pivotal moments? I'm an entrepreneur who I feel like I'm a grinding entrepreneur. I feel like I've been an entrepreneur since I was 10 years old. So it's been filled with that, both ups and downs, just lots of reflections on how that's kind of affected some philosophies I have. I think just generally, I, I guess one thing I would say is, is that I think I have so far, I think I've lived kind of an extraordinary, my, my story is kind of extraordinary. I mean, at least in my world, it's extraordinary. And so I have not taken safe, secure route. I, I just have never done that. And partially that's because I've challenged myself not to do that. So Because of that, there's been some amazing ups and some really hard downs. All right. We're going to get into the ups and the downs. Randy, let's start with when you were 10 years old and you being an entrepreneur, what did you do? Well, when I I was 10, I lived in Fresno, California, and I remember going, and you've heard this all the time from entrepreneurs, that paper route story. But where I was, you couldn't even have a paper route until you were 13. And my folks helped me convince the local paper that I could handle it. It's actually kind of funny because I was on my bike, riding around the neighborhood, delivering papers. And then certain things that happened, like one time I broke my arm and that meant that my parents were getting up helping me do it, which I'm sure they hated but that's the kind of folks they are. They would, they would be like, well, he signed up for this, so we got to help him. I innovated the paper route industry because I figured out how on my Apple II to get everybody's addresses in there. And rather than collecting by knocking on their doorstep, I would have them get little envelopes with my address label on it. And they would just send the money in and I didn't have to go collect it all. So I uh, streamlined that process for sure. Randy, what was it about having your own paper route at age 10 that was calling your name? It's interesting. I've always thought that I I have never thought that I would have a hard time making money. (laughs) I mean, I just 
it's weird. I've all I've I've felt like I'd have a hard time going up and talking to a girl. I felt like I would have a hard time doing lots of things, but making money is not something I ever thought I would have a hard time doing. And so the paper route was just kind of the beginning of that. This was a way where in a couple hours I could have some spending money, and if I actually figured out how to make it easier, then uh, then I you know you'd, you'd end up getting paid more per hour. And I I did I have done this kind of stuff forever. I mean I'm like the guy who saw that a dot com went out of business and bought all their Aeron chairs and then resold them on eBay. I have made money reselling tickets like sports tickets. I had a car detailing business when I was in high school. It's just like I don't know. I'm a I'm a hustler. I'm out there hustling. Where did the confidence to hustle come from? It's just such a great question because my dad. Back when I was a kid, he had a, a management job. I definitely think of my folks as hustlers too, but I have thought that I would run my own business since I was as early as I can remember. And I don't know where it came from. It's just, I will say this, you know, I, I hate ceilings. So like if someone says, look, you spend three years in this position and then you spend three years in this position and if you stick it out, you can make partner or be the, you know, I work for a shipping line. It's just like those kinds of things where there's this pathway to do it. I don't like pathways. I just don't like them. And and, um, I want life to be a meritocracy without limits. I love it. Were you, you know, your folks, they're hustlers too. How are they bringing their financial lives to life for you or not? Like, were they modeling behavior? Were they, were you guys talking about it around the dinner table? Yeah, I would say that my folks, we're probably middle class as a kid, or maybe a little shading toward the upper middle class side. And, but I mean, in my house, it was always like, that is not something we need. I mean, I cannot, I, it's like etched in my brain, my mom saying, but do you really need that? It's funny, I, I got older and I would say to her, you know what, that is not the right question. I want it. Yeah, I don't need it. I want it. Uh, you know, so, but I mean, do you really need that? My folks watched their money so closely, but we still did things. We went on vacations and stuff like that, but we were very tight with the money and always have been. And I, I still am real careful. I don't think it would matter how much money I made. I think I'd be really careful with money. Like if I wanted something, my folks would say, well, you figure out how to earn money to pay for half of it and we'll pay for the other half. Things like that, like just always having us participate in appreciating that, you know, the money doesn't grow on a tree in the backyard. (laughs) Randy, what were you doing with all the money you were earning from your early hustling exploits? It's always been something different. When I was a kid, I was doing some things with my computer or, or sports, or sports equipment stuff, or like, I mean, I always had a, I always had a great, the most expensive baseball bat, and that was largely because of what I was doing, I, but I, like most things, you know, if I wanted to buy the little Mattel electronic football game, I had to have money to pay for half of it, and so I had to earn money. Did you save anything along the way, or were you sort of a spender? Yeah, I recall having a checking account, but I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't really remember the details about how much, but I had a checking account as a, as a young kid, but I don't, I don't remember the details about how much I saved or what I did with it. I certainly was not like a kid investor or anything like that. <laughs> so Randy, when you went off to college, did you continue in this hustling behavior? Uh, yeah, only the things that I was spending money on were different. So when I went to college, again, this is kind of like my folks, my dad said, I went to Berkeley and my dad said, all right, here's what the semester should cost, including your tuition. And he just gave me the whole batch. I mean, he just like thumped it into my bank account and I, it was up to me to make it last. And if I didn't make it last, well, I always made it last. So I never found out what would happen if I didn't. That was kind of a theme. And I detailed cars when I was in college, and it seems like when I detailed cars in college, I used it to fix the car that I just ran over the mailbox with. So, like, the money came in, and I used it to fix the things that I screwed up. Randy, I'm curious. When your your father is putting all that money in your bank account at the beginning of the semester, what did that feel like? 
it was nice because I didn't have to check in all the time and say, Hey, you know, dad, I need another thousand dollars or tuitions coming up in two weeks. Or I actually loved it. I didn't like having to kind of check in for money. And this made me not have to. And I always knew that it was my responsibility to ration it. And so I was super frugal in college. You know, I was like, I was making sure that I didn't end up in a bad spot at the end of the semester. So it, to me, it was great. I loved it. As you wrapped up college, what career did you launch into that didn't have the ceilings that you wanted to stay away from? Yeah, I actually launched myself into a career that had all of the ceilings that I hated. (laughs) I was an engineer, so I went to work for Matson Navigation, which is a container shipping line. Back at that time, pretty much anything that was in Hawaii got there on a container uh, vessel. And so I worked for them and I did things like trying to improve their processes and things like that. But what's frustrating about a container shipping line is it really is... If you stick around for 20 years, you'll be able to manage the terminal in Los Angeles. And, oh my gosh, that just sounded terrible to me. I did the engineering job for a while, and then I I convinced them to let me go into sales, which is the first time they'd ever let an engineer do sales. And I think I frustrated everyone there because I was like so restless and unsatisfied with the weight to advance at the company. And eventually I just realized I can't work here forever. And that's when I decided to go back to business school, which made them all mad. I did not leave on very good terms. They were all so mad at me for leaving that I I just kind of like jumped in my car after I left for the last day and never came back. (laughs) And what was your plan around business school? What prompted you to go in that direction? I definitely, being an entrepreneur from the earliest days. I mean, I think I always knew that I was going to be an entrepreneur in some way, but also going back to business school was going to allow me to like check out some things I'd never done. You know, I had friends doing things in finance. I had no clue about anything in finance. And this was going to let me actually study some things like that. Marketing was another one. I wasn't even really sure what marketing meant back at that time. And so for me, this was going to be a chance to learn about all the different facets to business and kind of figure out what my path was going to be. But the minute I got there, I, I found myself pointing myself in the direction of entrepreneurial type of things. And it became pretty clear to me that that's what got my blood pumping. So Randy, this is when we'll share with the listeners, we actually know each other from business school. Mm-hmm. And I remember you launching what became your job in business school Tell us a little bit about that story, like why this idea, where did it come from? There's some of us, when I heard it, I thought, well, that sounds fun, but yeah. didn't necessarily saw a, you know, a future career out of it. Yeah, so I'm in business school, and where all of our classmates are talking about all the different things we might do, whether it's consulting or entrepreneurs, but we're all dreaming. We're all in business school dreaming of what we're going to do. My dreams always pointed to starting something on my own. And so I I signed up for the business plan writing class at Anderson at UCLA where we went. On the first day of class, they said, all right, so in order to take this class, you have to have a business idea. I did not have one. They said, you get a couple days to come up with one. And I was hanging out with some friends and they said, we were just having some beers. And one of them threw out this question, or actually I threw out the question, which was, how much money would you have to get paid in order to eat a live kicking cockroach? And as ridiculous as that sounds, we just had the best time. We talked about all the gross details. Everybody had a different crazy number. And then another guy that I was with said, would you rather bite the curb and get kicked in the back of the head or get a paper cut on your eyeball? And um, yeah, really, it's not real. It's just a question. Randy, it feels real. It does feel real, It's which is what makes it great. <laughs> so we all just had the best time, and I just decided, okay, you know what? I'm going to – me and Mike Lloyd, who was the guy who I was sitting with who came up with that question, we're both in the same business plan class. And we went back into the class the next day and said our business is going to be a game built around those types of would you rather questions. And honestly, I don't think either of us ever intended to actually do it. 
it was just too ridiculous to really be a business. But we were gonna, I was gonna learn to write a business plan doing that. And, um, and man, everybody in the class loved the idea. I mean, I remember it just felt like every time it was our turn to give our business update, everybody was just so, they just thought it was so ridiculous and fun that they were engaged. And so what turned out to be like something completely ridiculous and non-businessy, you know, it wasn't an ergonomic chair or a whatever all these other folks were coming up with, all of a sudden started to look like maybe it had, maybe we should do it. And so Mike and I kept pressing forward. We, we entered the business plan contest and won a prize. And a number of the alumni and business plan judges wanted to invest in this business that we hadn't even really thought would, was real. And when that happened, I think when people want, started wanting to give us money, that's when I was like, I'm going to do this. <laughs> you know, this was the second year of business school. I canceled all my job interviews with Morgan Stanley and uh, I just decided we're going to do it. Um, and so sure enough, that's, that was the business I, we created and printed this board game. It was called Zalmondo, that crazy would you rather game. I started that business and it eventually grew into something really legitimate. Are you at this time motivated by money or what's driving you in this vision? To me, it's more of the accomplishment. And again, you know, to me, the accomplishment is, can you take an idea and craft it and strategize with it to the point where it's profitable? And then the question is, well, how profitable is it? Again, this all translates back into, to me, it translates into accomplishment. And really, that's at the end of the day, when I'm looking in the mirror, I want to be proud of my own accomplishments. And money's definitely a part of it, especially as an entrepreneur, it's definitely a part of it. But what I found as the business grew and I was making more and more money, I don't think the money necessarily translated into my, like my level of happiness. But it definitely legitimized my ability as a businessman, as an, and a, as an entrepreneur. What was it like when you were launching this business? Was your business school training sufficient enough to give you the confidence to be able to make all the thousands of decisions I'm sure you had to make every day? Definitely helped. When you're about to do something and in your brain you say, I don't even know what marketing is, versus you say, well, I don't know everything about marketing, but I know enough to be dangerous. That's kind of what business school did for me. And it, it did that for me in so many different areas of business that, look, I knew I didn't know any, everything. I wasn't an expert. I, I consider myself pretty street smart. So I figured, you know, if I can blend street smart, tenacity, uh, determination with, with some of this basic knowledge, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And, and I also think, I'm not sure confidence is the right word. I just... I value trying. I want to live in the arena. I'm just as afraid to fail as anyone else, just as nervous in situations that are foreign to me as anyone else. It's just that I, when I'm 85 years old and I'm sitting in the chair, I don't want to look back at those moments and say, wow, the fear stopped you. So I, I just push through it. Uh, that's kind of what I do. I'm still just as scared. <laughs> it's a great reminder and that, an entrepreneur could be just as afraid as anyone else. You know, you'd sort of think, oh, they must be fearless. But it's, it's a great perspective. So Randy with Submondo, huge success. Would you tell us the story? Yeah, sure. So um, it was just a grind. So I figured out how to print 5,000 copies of the game. I rented a, a space at Toy Fair, showed up there with a bunch of my friends in New York City and started selling it to little mom and pop game stores. And then I had a couple medium-sized game stores that were interested, and we just started from there. And there was a little bit of a hiccup in the middle because after my first year, Hasbro showed up at the trade show and said, we love this game, we want to license it from you. And when you license a game to Hasbro, that's like hitting a home run. That means you probably got a pretty fat check to begin with, you know, maybe in the low six figures. But now you're a royalty check guy, which means all you're doing is really going to the mailbox and collecting the checks, which is kind of like the dream for an inventor. And so I had a deal with Hasbro. It, it didn't turn out as great 
as I hope to just, I always say this, I, I say this to inventors all the time. It's, it's like, it's almost impossible that someone else is going to have the same passion for your idea than you do. And that was true. I mean, Hasbro had tons of game ideas they were doing. I kept looking at what they were doing with my game thinking, gosh, you know, you should be doing this. Or if I had those resources, I would do this. And I would, I mean, honestly, I think they stopped picking up the phone. I was a number to them. They stopped picking up the phone from my ideas. And finally, after a couple of years, I went to them and I said, luckily, I, I hired a good lawyer to do my contract. And I had a milestone where if they didn't reach it, I could take the property back. That's what I did. And I started again. This time, I had a little credibility because of Hasbro. And I sold to medium-sized stores like Barnes & Noble. And it became a very big seller at Barnes & Noble. And one day, I picked up the phone and Target was on the other line saying, we want to bring this in. And I, I thought, oh, man, you know, can I do this? And the guy on the phone was like, you can do it. Here's what you got to do. And so the next thing you know, I was in Target. And pretty soon, I was the, the games and some other games that we'd created were at Target, Walmart, Kmart, just everywhere. And the sales went up to uh, in the $8 million annual range. We sold, gosh, we sold in excess of 4 million copies of the Would You Rather game. And I mean, it was crazy good. It was crazy good and, and really fun. And I will say, like, the best part about it, like, we talk about the accomplishment. I really, during that time, felt like I had accomplished something. I looked in the mirror. I don't know if there's a beeper on this, but I looked in the mirror and I felt like a badass, you know, and, and I'm cruising through target, checking out like, Oh, there's my games. Yeah, there it is. I mean, it was at the point where I was hearing about the game from people I didn't know. And a lot of them, I was in the toy fair building and people were, were impressed with me. Most importantly, like I said, I was impressed with myself for getting this done. And that was a great feeling. It was an intoxicating feeling to get to that level. And there was some, there was some downsides too. Some of the big toy companies started coming after me. Some of them started to knock me off. And all of a sudden, the spotlight got really bright. Some of the more annoying things started to happen too. And the story kind of transitions to the point where I had uh, two guys who had written a book of Would You Rather questions, basically thought that I had stolen their idea. And I, the, some litigation started and some toy companies that were interested in my product began to partner with them and the, the litigation continued. I mean, I, I didn't steal the idea from anybody. I ended up in a trademark infringement lawsuit and I actually won the lawsuit on summary judgment, but then the other side appealed and the ownership of the other side changed hands two or three times finally ending up in the hands of the world's third largest toy company, which was challenging and very expensive. And I spent millions of dollars on litigation. And eventually, although I had won the lawsuit on summary judgment the first time around, eventually it went in, went in front of a jury and I lost. And I lost the rights and the revenue disappeared in a heartbeat. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? And it was just extremely, and, and I'd lost this baby, which was like every, you, you said what it was like. I mean, gosh, everywhere I went, I was proud that I had created this product. And now it just felt like there were people out there who thought I was a thief. It didn't feel like I could be proud of creating this product anymore. And just emotionally, it was, completely devastating. I mean, it was just completely devastating. It's been a climb back from that moment. That moment happened in 2012 and it's been a climb back ever since. What's interesting as I tell the story, people are always like, wow, what would you have done differently? And in all honesty, there's nothing I would have done differently. I invented this product with lots of people's help, but I grew the product to a big success and I fought as hard as someone could fight, even though I knew that 
losing could be financially devastating. I did not submit to the fear. I fought as hard as I could, and then I lost. If I had not fought, people ask me, well, did you ever have the opportunity to settle? And I did, just not for very much money. And if I had settled, I would have spent the rest of my life believing that I would have won and that I didn't have the strength to go through. And I'm, I'm just, although the story is a rough one, honestly, even just sitting here talking about it, I'm so glad that I did not quit. I'm so glad I didn't quit because it would be really hard believing that I would have won if I'd have just stuck it out. And so I, I don't have regrets. I don't have regrets. I did my best. And it just sometimes, sometimes you do your best and you don't win. And I will also say that there has been much, much soul searching over the whole series. Of, I mean, I was in a litigation for over four years, spent over $4 million. And then when it was over, just financially devastating. It's amazing what perspective is. I think I was talking to a college buddy of mine and I was just feeling so crappy. And he was like, man, he's like, I know how you feel. My brother passed away. And I was just like, wow, what am I whining about here? There are so many, all of us deal with adversity and so much of it is so much worse than what I had dealt with. And I'm not trivializing it. It sucked for me. It really did. And I felt really bad for a long time and still sometimes feel bad. But at the end of the day, I'm completely blessed with family and friends and opportunity. Sometimes I have to just remind myself of that. I'm not the only person that's dealt with adversity. In fact, many, many people have dealt with much greater adversity than I. So I just have to remember that. Andy, thank you for sharing all of that. It sounds like you found yourself stuck with some really difficult, would you rather questions to deal with and that you're happy with what you, with what you chose. Yeah, so true. <laughs> Could you share with us what it was like? You said you picked yourself up afterwards. How'd you do that? That's really tough. People do, as you mentioned, face adversity all the time. And there's, I think, a lot of learning for all of us to take away from picking oneself up after that. I will say that I am, a, as I said, I'm a restless, tenacious person. And so during this time, I was consuming every self-help book you can imagine, whether it was me trying to learn Buddhism or reading Strength Finder to figure out what, I mean, I was reanalyzing every part of my life. And I remember being at the toy show after it happened and someone saying, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, you have to stay in the industry. You have a Walmart vendor number. And I was like, man, I do not care about the Walmart vendor number. I am trying to figure out how to breathe. I do not have to stay in this industry. I do not. I don't know if I'm going to. So I guess the answer to your question is, how did I pick myself up? Man, I mean, I didn't pick myself up for months and months. My friends, including Cami, have seen me in some low moments. And as I think I've said before, I'm a bit of a reality show. I mean, when I am feeling low, man, I, I am a pile on the floor. And then I pick myself up for a day, and then I'm a pile on the floor for four more days. And I think the answer to your question is for me was, some days I just had to be okay with feeling crappy. There was just this grieving process that had to take place. Man, I never begrudge people when they say to me, I feel awful today. I never begrudge them for that. They're going through something, and there's a course that they have to get through, and I fought and clawed and begged for help from friends and family and books and movies. I had this one movie that someone sent me and it's such a corny movie. It's called Finding Joe. And 
for some reason, watching that movie would make me feel better. And there would be times when I'd wake up and go, oh, God, I got to watch that movie right now. Right now, where is that movie? I got to have it. And I would just do things like that. I mean, like anything else, it's, whether it's a divorce or a family tragedy, all of a sudden you feel good one day out of seven, then two days out of seven, then three days out of seven. And next thing you know, you're only feeling bad one day out of seven. And that's kind of what it was like. Randy, some of these details might be hard to recollect. What were the conversations you were having with your wife at that time? Gosh, it was so hard. Because she's scared too, right? This is a... Oh my gosh. People who... Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're worried financially. People who are seeing me and used to my enthusiasm and optimism and are seeing me it's terrible seeing somebody you care about in pain. I mean, it is terrible. And it, I know it was really hard for her. Really, really hard. It was hard. The whole lawsuit was hard on our marriage. She just wanted the old me to come back. And I wanted the old me to come back too, but I couldn't figure out how to get it back. Those were the conversations. What can I do? I don't know. Sometimes it was, why won't you do more? And she's like, well, I don't know what to do. I wish there was a perfect answer that would out there inspire people. But the truth is, those times are really messy when nobody has the right answer. And you just, like most things, you just got to put one foot in front of the other, even if it's just a tiny step. Things Time heals all wounds. Things get better. They just always do. They always get better. We just had to survive it. And how did you deal with the money aspects of that? Because in times of great transition and emotions, money can, can really play different roles. It can really help and it can really hurt. What was happening for you guys? It was super scary. We live in Marin County. Uh, we had bought this big house. And the question was, do we sell it? Again, even as, as devastated as I was, I still thought I would bounce back. I just wasn't sure how long it would take. So I didn't want to sell this house that we love living in. I wanted to, it felt like if I did, it was like a step backwards. I didn't want to take a step backwards. And so my wife would have sold the house if it would have made me feel better. I think there were some things that happened that helped calm us during this time. First of all, I'm blessed with a really supportive family. Although I, I've used very little of it, the safety net is, has always been there. I'm never, I was never worried that I wasn't going to have a roof over our head. I mean, we, we looked at every single penny we were spending. Every penny. I mean, we're saving, we're trying to figure out how to cut $20 out of what we're doing without having it spill over into, into our kids and things like that. Really hard conversations. Really, really hard ones. Like trying to figure out how to take the, what's left of the business and, and bring it back, which quite frankly, just, it just, everything kept not working. Everything we were doing just kept not working. Um, now, the good news is when you make a lot of money and then you don't, you get a huge tax refund. So I got a big tax refund that or we got a big tax refund that we lived on for a little while. And then there was, I managed to, after losing the litigation, I managed to settle post judgment and did so in a way where I could sell some of the product that I had left in inventory. And so that helped give, give us a little, I call it my runway to figure out. So I, I, I think when it was over, I feel like I had like a year and a half runway to, to figure it out with all, with all those things. And so it was on. I mean, we knew that that, that, that money was going to run out and, uh, and we had to figure it out. But it was very difficult. You know, as I said before, I, I never, ever thought I would have a hard time making money. And all of a sudden I was. And all of a sudden money was limiting what we could do. And that was really hard. It's really scary. Randy, at that time... I'm sure you're thinking the last thing I want to do is go into entrepreneurship again. Or were you? No, I mean, like I said, I was reading Strength Finder 
I was trying to figure out what gets my blood pumping. And I, I will tell you that I am a very tenacious, enthusiastically oriented, fueled person. And this thing that happened, it really uh, felt like the world wasn't fair. And as I joke, when you believe that the world is just, and you think if you run hard enough, you can run through any brick wall. But when you stop believing the world is just, you're not as fast a runner, and you have doubts as to whether you can break down that brick wall. And, and by the way, that is still with me today. I mean, I am not as fast a runner. I have to be more creative, and I have to find motivation in other places. And what I did was I just tried to figure out what gets my blood pumping and gets me excited. And I looked at everything. And at the end of the day, it was like, God, you know, meritocracies, no ceilings, limitless upside. And, and those I couldn't find anywhere. But, but as an entrepreneur, I couldn't find them anywhere else. So at the end of the day, it was like, God, you're stuck with this. This is what gets your blood pumping. This is what you have to try it to do again. I guess that answers the question. I mean, I am who I am, whether I like it or not. So what did you do? My family owns a small business in the North Bay. They make very large food processing equipment. I went up there. Well, first of all, I tried to get the games that I still had in my portfolio rolling again. I just hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. It may have been that the retail marketplace decided that I was a trademark thief and didn't want to do business with me anymore. That is possible, although no one ever told me that. But it's just like the buyers just were not buying what I was selling. And so now also at that time, retail was really down. This was 2012. Amazon was, everybody was terrified of Amazon. Just arguably even more so than they are now. Now they just accept that Amazon's a force. Back then they were like, Amazon's actually taking our business. So I made a decision at that time to, to switch the business to Amazon only business, which all my friends just thought was nuts. Well, my wife and I partnered together and, and started to try to figure out how to grow that business for, the, for our games. But I mean, it went to zero. I mean, it, it, it went to next to zero. And uh, we're making just a few dollars. It's like, less than a hobby doing this. And then, but you know, I had control of some content and when you sell content, you don't give it back. Content is king. And I wasn't willing to, to give it away. I was like, you know what? I'm keeping it somehow, somewhere. It's gonna, I'm going to be able to sell it again. You know, it was kind of the attitude. And then I went up to my parents' business up in Santa Rosa and I said, what's happening in the food industry? Where are the opportunities? And uh, my dad said to me, we have this machine that we uh, acquired from another company, uh, the rights to it, and it, it cooks a garbanzo bean into a flour that I've sent this flour around to some food companies, and they say it's really amazing. And, you know, my dad was like, I'm 75 years old. I'm not going to start any new businesses. And if you want to try to sell this flour you know, be my guest. And I managed to convince him to not sell the equipment that was making the flour. And so I uh, started trying to manufacture this flour and sell it to food companies as an ingredient. And I, I will tell you that, you know, this was over five years ago. Neither of them worked. I mean, neither of them worked. The board game business just was, was floundering and Although everybody loved the flour that I was selling, nobody was buying it. And I wasn't sure why. I mean, if, if you're selling something that's awesome, people should buy it because it's awesome. I kept saying that. If this is so great, why isn't anyone buying it? And I just kept running into wall after wall after wall and turning right and trying something different and turning right and trying something different for a long time. And... Uh, eventually I ran out, we ran out of money. I took a job with my family's business and we paid our bills uh, with that. And in the meantime, I'm doing this other stuff too. 
and then I will also say that the one thing that probably kept me sane is, is as crazy as it sounds is that house that we bought had appreciated to the point where I always knew that if we sold the house, we'd be okay. It had appreciated and we had a bunch of equity in it. And I thought, well, if we, if we have to sell the house, so that kind of kept me able to sleep. And then gradually, literally over years, we started learning more about how to sell on Amazon and the board game started selling better and we started to make some real money. And then I supplemented that with the money I was making at my family's business. And I kept trying new things with the chickpea flour that continued to not work. And then finally, I got so frustrated with not being able to sell this ingredient that I decided, well, you know what? I know how to sell to retail. We're going to create our own food products. And uh, we, we are beginning to create our own food products. So we, so we just launched on Amazon a, a chickpea-based spread, like a peanut butter alternative without any allergens. It's called Finally. And uh, it literally launched just a few weeks ago. And I'm really excited about it. It's like, this product is better than I hoped it would ever be. And I'm a sales guy. And I'm excited about selling things that I think are awesome. So, I mean, look, I mean, we're at the beginning. It's, I'm still grinding. I mean, I got a long way to go. I'm not out of the woods, but I'm, I'm mu much more optimistic at this point. And it's delicious. I've had some. So well done. <laughs> Thank you. Tenacious must be your middle name. Honestly, if someone were to ask me what you need to be an entrepreneur, I would say tenacity and staying power. Most people who are entrepreneurs who fail just got tired of trying. And I will say, I get tired of trying. I just don't stop. Sometimes I'm tired. But like I told you, I want to live life in the arena. Even if I fail, I want to live life in the arena. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I have a quote that I quote all the time, which is, if you demand nothing but the best, you just might get it. You also might not get it, but your only chance of getting it is to accept nothing but that. And so that's the way I try to live. But I will tell you, there are plenty of times when I ask myself why I don't just have a paycheck still now. And there are plenty of times when I'm tired and burnt out. But I always seem to get my strength back. So I think I'm going to be all right. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's going to be the theme, right? I mean, finally. finally. You know? Hey, Randy, you've got children. What do you hope they learn about money from you and your life lessons? We try to remind our kids all the time that every one of these dollars for every soccer ball or whatever we had to earn it and it wasn't easy. It's not earn. It's not easy earning money. It's not easy. And so just appreciating the value for sure. I think the reality is, is that my kids are blessed like I was blessed in that they have so much opportunity. I hope that they'll realize that at the end of the day, if you're doing something you're passionate and tenacious about, the money is, has a good chance to follow. But I guess my biggest hope is that they won't be, it won't be about the money. I guess I hope that it'll be about the accomplishment more so than the money. To me, it's the effort that counts. And I, I just feel like if you're, if you're really put in the effort and the drive and the passion, that things eventually will work out. And I got my fingers crossed that that's true. <laughs> Randy, what's one piece of money wisdom that you want to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in this very rich conversation? Well, I, I, one thing that I, I actually thought about before we talked is that if, if, you know, if someone say, what does money mean to you? I would say money to me seems like a limiter. It limits. It just feels like it limits so many things. And the, the real challenge is, is to find a way to have, you know, everybody says it's, it's the, about the journey, not the destination. And I really believe that's true. Like, I mean, I hate worrying about money. I hate it when there's something I can't do because of money. I hate, I hate money being the focus of things. And so when I can't redirect myself and uh, away from looking at money as a limiter, I'm a lot less happy. I don't like it. I don't like being limited by anything, let alone the money. 
things like retirement or investing or savings or spending less. In my opinion, all those things give you a chance to have money not be the limiter. Excellent, Randy. All right. What is your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I bet my next money conversation will be probably about people who want to invest in my food company. I'm totally not looking forward to it because I like selling things and creating things. I don't like schmoozing people for money. So it's it's like, that's the next money conversation I'm going to have. And I'm not really looking forward to it. We just talked to uh, another guest who thinks it provides great strength to be in that position to have to go have those money conversations. So I hope it brings you great strength, Randy. Me too. Me too. It's hard to imagine, but you know, me too. I wish I lived in a world where I could just go do my thing and I didn't have to kind of like convince anyone of anything. But like I said, in, in this way, money is a limiter and it, it is what it is. I'm going to have to confront it. Well, Randy, we wish you luck with those conversations and thank you so much for sharing all your money tales with us. We're glad you're in the arena fighting <laughs> and um, we wish you the best of luck with finally as well. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun. Thanks, Randy. Yep, you're welcome. Cammie, tell me, what was it like to have a Money Tales conversation with your close friend? Uh, it was really special, Sandy. Randy is a good friend, not just from business school. We've stayed very close since then. And I've gone through his journey with him. But in today's conversation, I realized there was a lot that I hadn't been part of the really intimate aspects of both the success and the failure. And I really appreciate Randy sharing his story with us because I um, there's so much to learn from. And in the, the building up of his gaming business, which I was there the days that he first launched when we were in business school in the computer room back in the day when you'd go to a computer room, <laughs> I'm dating myself, you know, I was there at the birth of and, and hearing the conversations around Zabmondo. And then I watched my friend just build something that sounded silly and it just became bigger and bigger. And he, he did such a great job with his vision and leadership. And then I, I remember hearing about what was happening with the lawsuit and it just was, it was so unfortunate to see. And through this conversation, I learned so much about Randy and I'm so proud of him. One of, one of the things that I, I hadn't heard, but I'm thrilled about was when he said, I'm so glad I didn't quit. Doesn't look back thinking, was well, if I only I had sold and not gone through the end, he would have questioned it. He would have questioned what could have happened. And I, I think that's really telling of who Randy is. And it also reminds me of what, another comedy man. It's, it's not just about the money. It was really about him and his accomplishments. So it was a wonderful gift to have that conversation with Randy. I love talking about money. <laughs> so I many great it. things come from it. We can become even closer to our friends as a result of these conversations. Cammy, one of the things that I really liked was the vulnerability he expressed about being nervous in business situations and his entrepreneurial situations. I think he said something like, I'm just as afraid to fail as anyone else. I get nervous in situations that are foreign to me. And when I'm older, I don't want to be sitting around looking back at these moments and saying, oh my gosh, fear stopped me. So he pushed through. And I loved that. When it comes to business and money, if we can talk about some of these uncomfortable emotions, fear, nervousness, that helps make us stronger. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think we can just help support each other even more. So I really appreciated that Randy shared all that with us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right. It's, it's making it no longer the elephant in the room. It's out there and you're talking about it. Sandy, what's a takeaway for you from Randy's money tales that you'd like to share with our listeners? One thing that, that I really focused on, Kimmy, that I wanted to highlight was some comments Randy made about the equity he had in his home, how that was a backstop for him and his family. 
when everything else fell apart. He said he knew they could always sell the house if they needed to and tap into the equity. And I, I put a pin in that comment because in the planning work that we do for clients, we rarely ever plan on the clients tapping into the equity in their home for that very reason. So that if everything else sort of fell apart, the clients would always have some equity to tap into. I appreciated that Randy shared his thoughts about how he and his wife were thinking about the home equity Mm -hmm. and how that provided some financial stability at a time when they really didn't have any from what he described. That foundation gave him and, and his family the confidence to continue and persevere. Sandy, I really want to commend Randy, who is, has already been so successful. I think about what success is. We sort of think there's uh, the end of the finish line and you run through some, some tape and you're done. And I, I think life has just a bunch of different journeys in it and you get little successes along the way. And he's, he's been so tremendously successful in my eyes. And I love seeing that he's come back from what could have been something that stopped him from ever being an entrepreneur to continue to embrace the entrepreneur's journey and launching with his wife, Tracy, the Garbanzo Bean Company called Finally. It's just neat to see, and it, it makes a lot of sense for who they are and what they're, what they're trying to solve for. Kimmy, I share that gratitude for Randy and sharing these stories with us. I know I personally learned a lot from what he had to share. I can really appreciate his journey and, and where he's come from. And I did buy a jar of Finally. My family and I have enjoyed spreading it on different snacks, uh, and it pairs very nicely with chocolate chips. So. <laughs> Be sure, listeners, to check out that product. I find that I have to sneak the jar to get a bite or two before my daughter sees me. Otherwise, she wants in on with her spoon. So it is delicious. Thanks again, Randy Horn. It was great to have you on Money Tales and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Cammy. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, listeners. And let us know what you're, what you're doing, what your money conversations are. Reach out to us at podcasts at Asperient.com. See you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.